This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Dailygiving.org has surged past 9,000 daily givers. Please add yourself to that roster and you can give magnanimously to such wonderful, beautiful, thoroughly vetted causes on a daily basis, only $1 a day. That's under $400 a year for the mathematically challenged. And you can have a tremendous impact with that $1, dailygiving.org. Meanwhile, what a treat it was to interview Moshe Gersht today. You know, in my rabbinic outreach circles, there was an explosion of excitement when a recent TEDx talk came out by one of our very own on that fancy polished stage and giving a message that was universal but emanating from the depths of Jewish tradition. And that was Moshe Gersh, who is also a best-selling author and has a fascinating personal journey. His recent TEDx talk has garnered tens of thousands of views already and quickly climbing. Very excited to introduce him to our audience today. A reminder to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever that may be. In Apple, you press the little plus sign in the top right corner to follow the show. Comments, questions, Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now it's our conversation with lecturer, author, spiritual seeker, musician, Moshe Gersht. We are here with Rabbi Moshe Gersht, fresh off a very exciting TEDx talk that has gone viral uh, a little bit in the last couple of weeks. Really exciting. And I'm looking forward to hearing all about how that developed and the process and everything about it. But first, how are you, Rabbi Moshe? How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Harry. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Our paths have crossed a bit over the years. Uh, not not extensively, but uh, a little bit. And nevertheless, I have never gotten the full story of your childhood and your development and growth. And you teased it a little bit in the TED Talk. So that really piqued my interest. And I want to get the full version. So let's dive in. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and what your early upbringing was like. You know, it's funny. You say the full version of my life or of my childhood. I don't even know if I know the full version of myself. <laughs> Who knows the whole thing? But now, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. So I'm a SoCal kid at heart, raised on the beaches of Santa Monica. So lots of surfing and boogie boarding and all that fun stuff. And then the snowboarding and Big Bear and, and all those areas. So uh, born and raised there. My family, you know, sent me to uh, traditional Jewish schools, you know, my, my whole life. And then I think I was 13 when uh, I started playing music. And that's when that kind of took my life in a very clear direction. I spent almost a decade uh, singing and songwriting for a rock band. It, had, it went through different iterations of names, but it was basically me and one other person who started this group. And then we added a couple other members and we were all together for almost the entirety of, basically every day of my teenage years uh, was one, like very unifocused. You know, it's a, it's a, it, you know I'm, I'm with you. So it's all the time, you, you know, the time is yours. It's a long story. But, uh, okay, but I, well, I, I, I want to yeah. hear it. I want to hear the long version, or at least the longer, longest version. <laughs> you know, just first, where exactly in California was it? Which part of LA, and what was the environment like? Uh, I mean, I was born and uh, raised in North Hollywood, so that's the Valley. And the last couple of years were in the Pico Robertson area. If are you familiar with LA? I am. I am sure all the restaurants are in Pico. So of course, oh, there you go. So. Uh, so I did. I spent the majority of my childhood in the same house. And then my family actually made Aliyah. They moved to Israel when I was 18 uh, and basically left me with an ultimatum. You know, I was choosing music. You know, if, if you saw the TED Talk, you know that there was there was a point where I had to choose between high school and uh, being in this rock band. And uh, it was difficult on one hand and then, you know, a pretty easy decision on the other because my pa- I was always very passionate. My parents very much encouraged me to use my creativity. And if something was speaking to your heart, you have to listen to it and, and follow that direction. My parents are very spiritual. Like we, we weren't so religious uh, growing up, but we were very spiritual. God was very present. 
angels and souls and all this, you know, very mystical. I, live, I grew up in a mystical home. My mother- in California. You know. <laughs> in California, look, my parents, when they made Aliyah, they moved to Israel and they moved to Tzfat. So they spent the last 50 years in Tzfat. So LA, Tzfat gives you a little bit of a background picture of where, you know, my I was coming from in terms of my nurture. And when I made the decision to stay in the band, uh, that very same year, my family said they were moving to Israel. So whereas a lot of my friends, when they turned 18, they took a gap year and they went, went on all sorts of different programs in Israel. And I had my family get up and move there. And I stayed in L.A. to uh, to pursue a career in music. And you took a gap year in L.A. <laughs> I took a gap year in L.A., a gap couple of years. And they they did give me somewhat of an ultimatum and said, look, you have you have this year. We're going to emotionally and you know, to some degree, financially support you for one year as you try to make it work in the world of music. But after that, you're on your own. You either got to go. I deferred from all the universities that I'd gotten into and uh, they would either go to college or come to Israel. We've seen a lot of people go down the music road and it doesn't always end up, you know, in the place you want it to be. So uh, I had a little bit of a fire lit under me during that year. And uh, well, I had one goal in mind, which was let's get signed to a record label and make this happen. And uh, within about six months, we were we were signed to a record label and we started. Incredible, yes, and you alluded to that as well in your uh, story, which we'll get to. You know, your childhood. Did you go to a Jewish school? What what was your family's? Said they were kind of spiritual, not that religious. What was their Jewish practice connectivity? Sure, my parents were not Orthodox by any stretch of the imagination until I was close to nine years old. My uh, grandfather had passed away, and when that happened. I think it was the first time in my father's life that he really started to investigate his roots and his connection to Judaism beyond being Israeli and and having, you know, uh, some cultural affiliation to Judaism. And ultimately, that led him down a path of tshuva, of return to, um, to to a level of orthodoxy. And he started taking on mitzvot and other things along the way. Was that through the Chabad influence or who, who did he connect with? Yeah, it was. It was through Chabad and one other uh, rabbi in Los Angeles who was very influential in my family's life and my father's life for sure. And when that took place, I, we were already in Jewish schools, but Shabbat was an idea I learned about in school. <laughs> and kosher was an idea I learned about in school. And it was uh, it was a strange reality to grow up in because I was in a religious environment during the day and a very non-religious environment you know, by night. And it would be like, I'd go to school in my uniform and I'd come home and I'd change into, you know, punk rock clothes or I don't know. It was like, you know, an interesting dynamic. But when I was nine years old, that's when there was a major shift in between the ages of nine and, you know, 13 by my bar mitzvah. By the time I went to high school, they, my parents moved very fast and they, they became like very religious. It was a, a bit of a, almost like a shock and awe type of experience. Like, wow. So was that, was that jarring for you as, as a child? Yeah, I mean, it was, but thank God, I, I felt like I was very gifted to have parents who were understanding and respectful of of children. And so there was a lot of space to grow kind of at our own pace. And that's still true to this day. We're all, you know, nothing is ever forced, um, except I think when, you know, the, no more Saturday morning cartoons, that, that was forced. But, that's rough, that's rough. Yeah, but uh, and as as a nine year old, that was that's the that's the thing that stuck out to me. But other other than that, it was very loving and it was very natural. And I, I mean, I, I didn't I didn't really come around and find my place or my relationship to Torah until much later. I mean, I was in the band uh, for a very long time, and we always had Shabbat to some degree in our life, and we always had some level of kosher and I went to a yeshiva high school. I mean, it, we, we learned Torah all morning and we learned, you know, regular studies in the afternoon. Like, did you, you go know, to Valley where, Torah? Where'd you go? I, I did. I went to Valley Torah. And, but by the end, by the end of high school, it was, you know, for me, it was just about music. That was, that was what it was all about. And, so when did you get uh, into music? Who, who, how did you first find that in that passion? Yeah. I don't, you know, I guess if I would go all the way back, my parents bought a piano when I was probably around five years old. And then they had me train, you know, classical piano for about seven years. So until I was 12, it was just piano and it was just Beethoven and Bach and um, Mozart and all the, but very, very much so uh, the classics in terms of music. And then I think I was 12 years old when a friend had come over to my house and said, do you have any music? And I, all we had were like CDs of classical music and the Beatles, I think that was basically it. So like I said, yeah, I've got this great music. It's the Beatles and the Beatles. You got to get something good. Like, and I was like, the Beatles, they're the best. What are you talking about? And I had never really listened to the radio at that point. I was pretty, you know, sheltered and narrow. But <laughs> I kind of lived under a rock and in a box. And they said, you got to get some good music. And I said, what's, 
you know, what is good music? They said, go to a store and I want you to buy something. It's called the Spice Girls. Okay. And, <laughs> and I was like, okay, listen, I trust you. You're my friend. Like, that's what good music is. It took a while for me to figure out <laughs> what what I felt was good music, what resonated with Betraying my soul. Their, but it, uh, their, their adolescent or, you know, preteen <laughs> kind of a taste. <laughs> yeah, it was. In my day, I would have been like new kids on the block or something. <laughs> right. And eventually I, I, I did sit down with a friend of mine who was, who was also a musician. And he said, no, let me show you some real things. And he showed me Nirvana and The Offspring and Weezer and Smash Mouth and a bunch of punk rock bands. And uh, I remember there was one song and there was a song called Buddy Holly by Weezer. And when it got to the chorus section, I just felt like a uh, like a lightning bolt go through my whole body. Like, that's where I'm like, I went home straight from that song. I told my parents, that's it. The piano is nice. I'm done with the piano. I need an electric guitar. I want to be a rock. Like, that's it. Like, my life had totally shifted. I heard that one piece in the song and I just knew that that was the direction that I wanted to go in. I just bought my uh, son his first electric guitar. He's 15. So, you know, giving me, uh, I don't know if it was a Weezer song that got him excited about it, <laughs> but uh, he's, he's, he's getting into it. Were you autodidactic? in that regard did you teach yourself the guitar or did your parents bring in a uh, a punk rock you know guitarist you know, to support your uh, your new dreams it's a funny yeah they they actually did they went out and got somebody to come uh, help me learn guitar i did that for about three lessons and i was like i'll figure this one out on my own like uh, you know and and i just i i never learned uh sheet music i mean i spent all those years doing sheet music with the piano and i had some background but i just i just wanted to play and i was probably i was really impatient <laughs> So I just, I just really, and this uh, is before I, the I, pervasiveness I, of YouTube and, you know, all the tutorials that were out there. No tutorials at all. There were no apps. There was no smartphones. There was no nothing. It was just you and a guitar. And I would just go sit in guitar center um, or Sam Ash or any of these stores. And I would just sit there and watch people play and, uh, and then try to play myself and sit with other guitar players. And, you know, over time, if the music's in you, it finds its way to come out. So when did you know that you, you know, you had some talent, you had some ability to do something with the music? You know, I don't know if I ever knew. Uh, it was it was such a knowing and drive that this is what I was going to do. Like, I didn't know if it was good. I felt it was good. That's all that mattered. <laughs> um, and people were nice enough to tell me that it was probably when it wasn't. And and that, that encouraged me to keep moving in that direction. Pro if I had to be really super honest, it was probably by the second album where I put some music out and people actually, like, they had genuine responses that were like, wow, this is actually good, which indicated that they didn't like anything else I'd done before. But th this was like, wow, you're actually, you're, you're actually producing something that we like. And uh, that, was, that was a good feeling. Did you instantly gravitate or really stay with kind of that edgier sound? Or did you, you know, explore various genres? No, I mean, it was, it all, it always was in the rock genre, but it, it really was pop rock, pop punk. There was, I, I'm, I think in my heart, you know, maybe there is a Spice Girl living in there. I don't know. There's pop in there. I've, I've, I've pop inside of me. I really love bubbly, happy, positive, catchy music. I've, I mean, maybe it's the Beatles in me. I, I don't know what it is, but I like when things are simple. I like when things are beautiful. I, I appreciate complexity, but I, I think I'm a pretty simple person, so... And you feel that some of those other genres, like the, the punk genres, are more suffused with complexity? No, not that they were more complex. I mean, I think the punk and the rock aspects of them were probably the, the loudness that I, I like to listen to. But in terms of like my own creative expression, there was always more pop. I like, you know, I love a, an, a very catchy chorus when I write melody. Um, I love coming back to something that, you know, you can sing over and over again in the chorus. I, I like a melody that has a, a beautiful rhythm in the verse. And some of that does come through in kind of regular rock and roll. Um, so at some point you, you said you formulated this band. 13 is a pretty young age to, to join or to form a band. What was the band called when you first uh, put it together? Well, when we first started, it was called Global Warning. Um, I, 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 <laughs> Uh, it led to you know, putting, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, putting the putting the world on notice while uh, <laughs> while uh, usurping some big, you know, big points in the media. Uh, and the funny story behind that is our first concert was at a um, at a place on Sunset Boulevard called the Whiskey, the Whiskey A Go Go, which is like very, very famed. You know, every major rock band that like ever was had gone through the Whiskey at some point and. 
it was almost like a rite of passage that if you're from LA, uh, you know, you play the whiskey at some point. And we thought, well, there's no better time than now, right? Let's just have our first concert at the whiskey and like go straight through there. And so we called them up. I remember I was sitting with my friend Yona and who was the other guitar player in the band at the time. And we just literally with it with, again, no smartphones, right? So with the yellow pages, looking up the whiskey a go-go, finding it, calling and them answering who said, hi, you know, this is so-and-so from Global Warning. We wanted to know about, you know, booking a show uh, in, I think it was August, uh, which uh, it was July at the time. We wanted to book there in August. And they said, uh, oh yeah, how you guys doing? It's been so long. Uh, we, we would love to have you back. And in my mind, as a 13-year-old kid, I'm like, this is, I just hit the jackpot. Like, I guess we stole some other band's name and they already like us. So like, <laughs> like, yeah, that's fantastic. We miss you. How are you doing? And uh, and and they gave us a uh, a spot, you know, six So you basically later. were there by mistake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no mistake. Did they ever catch but, on? <laughs> well, actually, the funny thing is, so we ended up selling like 350 tickets to this show, which was significant. Like they were used to having 50 people show up at night. This was almost a sold out event. And because of your own friends like, and family, basically. Yeah. And like we were the only, you know, Jewish kids with a with a rock band playing at the whiskey. So all the other schools, you know, everybody came in. Um, when when they saw the numbers and the turnout, they were like, you can come here whenever you want. Like, we don't care what the name of your band is. Like, you guys are you guys are great. So uh, that got us in inroads over there. And then ultimately, we started meeting a lot of people in the scene over there on the Sunset Strip. Who That's when we started getting connected to other booking agencies and things like that. And, you know, things continued so th- throughout on. Throughout high school, you were playing all these different gigs. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And did you ever have an inkling from people? Were they telling you, hey, you, this could really, your band could go somewhere. This could be a career. Like, were you getting that kind of positive reinforcement? That Yeah. Yeah, all the time. I mean, that was, we loved it. We were passionate about it. But at some point, this became, you know, people were waiting for our next album. People were waiting for the next demo, the next DP. And, um, so long as people kept showing up to concerts, that was the indication that we were doing we were doing well. And uh, and then I t- like by the end when I was eighteen, so I had I had a little bit more fire under me when I knew that I had about a year to really make this work or not. Uh, and so we we basically gave it everything we had to try to get to a record label to to get some attention beyond just the the regular scene. So what's that process like? Because it sounds like you were playing lots of shows, you were meeting the right people. It seems, um, but nothing materialized I guess, formally in terms of a, a label and a contract. What, what is that process, and how did you intend to go about it? Yeah, I mean, at the time, social media was just beginning, right? So there was something called MySpace. Okay, now we've <laughs> dated ourselves. If you remember what MySpace is, but that's like pre-Facebook, and it was all that there was. And they had a, a, a pretty rather extensive music section like a lot of people in the music world were having breakthroughs um, using myspace at the time so we were aggressively trying to make that work for us and i think we had gotten about thirty thousand followers on myspace which was super significant hundreds of thousands of like plays on like the little player that they had on the screen over there Um, so it was really just a matter of you you know you would you'd put your demo together you'd make a press kit you get some pictures a bio um, and then your kind of PR like this is all the stuff we've done till now and uh, these are all the people we've played with these are all the venues we've been at you know look pay attention to us <laughs> which is you know it's not so different than um, how everybody on the planet walks around day to day right <laughs> that's we kind of carry this resume with us everywhere we go um, and we give different names for those things but that's what you would do you'd put together this press kit and basic weekly we would be sending out these kits to you know universal records and warner brothers and sony and and geffen and you know uh fueled by ramen and all these different uh record labels from from macro to micro and 99% of the time you'd never even hear back. And then 1% of the time you'd hear back and they'd say, thanks so much, try us in a year or something like that. And if you were really popular and you had really good music and you were talented and you had a connection and you had a lot of things working for you, so then maybe you'd get a, some sort of showcase and somebody would come out and check out your band. And um, we had done showcases before and other bands do showcases in front of like labeled and, and um, uh, people in A&R. Uh, but yeah, they, you know, most the very vast majority of the time, things don't materialize. You know how many uh, bands and actors and, uh, you know, artists and all these different in, in L.A. and Hollywood, it was like full. Like that was the whole 
you know, people move from all over the world to that place to try to find that one A&R person. What do you think tends to stand out for, you know, in those situations? Because like you said, there's so much talent there. There's so many people vying for scarce resources. And, you know, you said you got in front of the, you know, you got showcases and, and yet they weren't necessarily, you know, converting. So what do you think people were lo- are looking for in those? Are they just looking for like kind of like that it factor that is it totally subjective? What, what tends to help people stand out? If you were advising like a, you know, a 17 year old version of yourself today. Well, today is very different <laughs> for a lot of reasons. I mean, the entire industry has overhauled. I, again, if you, if you look at it, you know, historically from when we were involved in music, we were still putting out CDs. Like physicality doesn't even exist anymore. Like Napster just got onto the scene, right? So people were starting to download music and, and burn burn CDs and, and there was a lot of pirating happening. So the, the music industry was in major transition. So what people were looking for, and in a certain sense, maybe people are still looking for this, plain and simple is they're looking for a way to make money off of your band. That's what labels are looking for, right? So the only way you can do that is you've either got to be super, super talented um, even and and that you're being discovered and nobody knows about you yet and you've just has to be off the charts and there's nothing you can there, there's no advice you can give to somebody for that you either have it you're either that 10 out of 10 11 out of 10 uh, type of talent um, or you're or you're not or you've got great talent and you're also willing to do the work to build your fan base and if people see that you have got you've got the work ethic and you're writing really great songs um, there's a tremendous amount of potential maybe they can see going down the line, then what you're looking for is somebody that's going to take a chance on you, which is really what we did. I mean, we just kept going until we found that person who said, okay, well, you know, you, you've got it all. We're willing to take the chance. We weren't a finished product yet. You know what I mean? Like we, there was still, there was still some room to go and room to grow. Um, so they, they wanted to see that you already had kind of like a, an MVP, sort of that minimum viable product, a fan base that was there, maybe yes. a local but devoted fan base that they said, okay, this is kind of a proof of concept and we can then scale this. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And they, and that's still what's desired today. Look, I'm not in the music industry anymore, but I have a lot of friends who are still in the industry and uh, I still write music and I'm involved in that to some degree. And that is, that's exactly what they're looking for. You said it, right? MVP, they're looking for something that's already finished. And now I can take something that's finished and I can polish it. I don't want to take something and develop it um, unless it's something very special. So when did you actually get that, that label, that deal? You told you know, a cute story about it in, in the talk, in the TED Talk. How did it materialize that you ended up finally having that break? Yeah, so, I mean, we went through the whole story in the talk, like you said, but basically we got this um, gig at a party and it was supposed to be an after party for the Grammys, which ended up not being an after party for the Grammys as much as it was just a, a get-together. <laughs> <laughs> with some uh, some friends watching the Grammys on TV, um, so we were we were conned into showing up to this place. But uh, you know, bright side and the lucky side or the gifted or blessed side for us was that there was another group of people who were also conned into coming to this party, and they were um, CEO and president and one of the artists of a record label in LA. And they they showed up to this party pretty frustrated as well. Uh, but we had an opportunity to showcase in front of them. You know, it was a pretty low key. You know, it was in some garage. It was a, a garage that was converted into a recording studio, but it was in a garage. And we played a song and they said, you know, do you have another one like that? And then we played a second song and they said, do you have any more? So and after the third song, that was the first time they got up and said, hi, you know, we're, you know, Vincent and Barry, you know, we run a record label and uh, we, we really love your stuff and we'd love to have a proper showcase in a venue. Um, is that something that would interest you? And we were like, you know, mind blown could not believe that that's how it happened, right? And, and I think that's one of the deepest lessons in life is that like, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where salvation's coming from. You don't know where the surprise is coming from. You just have to kind of be open, stay open and, uh, and keep looking. So once they uh, kind of identified you or gave you this chance, what, what happened next? Did you, where did the showcase take place and what was that experience? The name of the venue was, uh, what was it called? I can't remember. It was like a dive little joint. It's called the joint. <laughs> That's what it was called. It was called the joint. <laughs> and um, and we went and we played over there. And uh, we, we it was just us on the stage and the label 
in the back of the room. That was it. Nobody in the room. It just a private audience where uh, we rented out the hall and, and played for them. And after the concert, we came down, we all sat around this big table and they said, you know, how would you like to go to Japan? And we were like, this is awesome. <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, and they basically, they offered us a deal uh, right there. It took another few weeks of, you know, working out contracts and things like that. But yeah, I, I remember clear as day walking into the office of the label, the four of us with our tour manager and all the guys at the label over there, at each person of the band, one by one, going through every page of the contract and signing, feeling like we were signing our lives away, but it was worth it because this was, you know, the rite of passage. And there we were. It was great. That was an amazing feeling. Did you have somebody advising you? Did you, I mean, you were kids, you know, dealing with a major label. How did you not get exploited? (laughs) Did you have an attorney, an agent? I think I had my dad look at the contracts. I don't, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't think we did very much more than that. You know, we basically at that point, we saw it as, as our opportunity. We could have like held out or tried to get a better deal, but we connected with uh, Barry Fosman and Vincent Petetti, who were the, um, the, the two main guys at this label. We really connected with them. They were super great, super down to earth, very grounded. Barry was a platinum holding producer, right? He had, he had done several albums that you know had sold i don't know how many hundreds of thousands or millions of copies at the time and uh and vincent uh the ceo was like just a really good guy didn't feel like anybody was trying to pull pull anything over us look could be we were getting scammed but so what was the process then i mean what what did you go start traveling did you did they put you on tour did they produce an album for you yeah all of the above right so immediately not long after we signed we started working on a demo, which was really going to be part of uh, a full-length album. So I think we signed in somewhere around January, maybe December. I can't remember if it's December, January. And then the album was supposed to come out, I think, in June. So we had six months to work on this album and you know try to get some, get some demo tracks out so that they can get to the radio, which it didn't take very long. It only took about three or four months from when we actually got to the studio to where the songs were actually getting radio play, which was pretty phenomenal and amazing. Uh, and in that time, after you know we'd go in, we'd spend a week or two in the studio, studio and then we'd go and do some time playing and they sent us out on two different tours in those first six months we went out for i think three weeks the first time and then another three or four weeks the second time uh and we went around the country you know with with other groups right we did you know these little mini tours where we'd go with one band for you know a leg of their tour so we'd do three or four shows with them and then another band for another couple of shows and then we'd do a lot of individual spacing so uh, got to see a lot of America and a lot of the country, and that, that was. That did you was make it to time. Japan? We did not make it to Japan. They they changed their game plan. They wanted first the album to come out, and they wanted to do some things locally first. I think they would have. I think they would have sent us all the way out there had we stayed long enough. I mean, the story ended quicker than we could have ever have imagined. I mean, from when we signed to when I left the band wasn't more than nine months. I think that was like the the total span of of that deal. Um, and they were really good to me about it um, when I left. It wasn't it wasn't easy for them. I mean, they had just invested lots of time, lots of energy, lots of money into this group, and then we got up and left. But uh, before I left, it was it was fantastic. We had tours and playing with some of our favorite bands in the process, and really getting to spend a lot of quality time with great artists. I mean, I don't know. Uh, in terms of relevancy, but there was a band called the Plain White Tees that was really big that we got to go out with and um, the Papa Roach and Story of the Year. And then we did stuff on the band's Warp Tour. So we got to spend a lot of time with New Found Glory and Yellow Card and Starting Line and Pennywise was there. I mean, these were all like super, super big uh, groups at the time. So, and we're talking them playing in front of crowds of 10, 20, 30,000 people a day. So um, this was, this, this was an exciting time in life for sure. That was an awesome year. What were you called at that point? In theory. Yeah, we had switched the name, I think, a year after the global warning thing. So, <laughs> Because it was just too kitschy? Like, it was like, what was the... Uh... Yeah, no, I, there are a few reasons. But I think the main one was um, the, the the other guitar player that I started with, him and I split. And we I took uh, two other members to kind of fill that spot. And so it was... It, the, the drummer was the same and the kind of the methodology was the same, but we weren't the same initial three that we started with. So when we, when that shift happened, we also, you know, switched out the name. So you said your whole tenure only lasted nine months. So what shifted, what changed? Was there some sort of existential uh, crisis for you? 
this was your dream. You were, you were living the dream. So why did you exit? Yeah, that's the right question to ask. <laughs> we were living the dream and it was, it was great. You know, there was, there was nothing not good about it. And uh, what triggered a series of thoughts that got me thinking beyond music for the first time in my life was one of the members in my band, unfortunately got involved with uh, methamphetamines, I think really got involved with drugs in a way that we, we didn't know how much he was struggling until one night we showed up to a concert and he didn't show. And so that meant we couldn't play. Right? And that was, that was a big faux pas of like everybody, the label, the manager, everybody, what is going on? And then, you know, we couldn't find him for a few days and then we had another show and then uh, he didn't show up to the second show. So at that point, we really had to, we, we sat him down and we told him that, you know, we're going to find a replacement in the meantime, but, you know, we love you. We care about you. Go spend some time in a facility, you know, and get clean and like start getting yourself back on track. And like, you know, your spot is, is basically is sacred by us. So we're, we're not, we're not letting you go. Just show us good faith that you're going to go take care of yourself. But that was the first time I really had to like look the rock and roll world in, in the face and say like, okay, this, this stuff is real. And he went and he got clean and then he came back, you know, a couple months later and things were okay for a little bit. And then he relapsed and he, he went back and it was again, like couldn't show up. And so it was right before we were about to sign with a booking agency. We were about to have our songs hit the radio and we were about to go on a new tour and we were not a full band because we kept having this issue. Uh, it was right before Pesach. Um, so Passover was in uh, like a week or two. And I basically looked at the band. They all looked at me and said, you're the one who's been friends with him the longest, right? So it's your call. You're the singer, you're the songwriter, you're the band's leader. But all of us, and when they said all of us, they meant everybody in the band, as well as the whole label team, we're all ready to let him go. Like it's, it's time. You've, you've got to make a decision. It's kind of in or out on this if, if you really want to do this. And that was a lot of responsibility. <laughs> to uh to hold at the time uh and a, and a painful experience to have to kind of think about do you gamble your life and your career by keeping someone in or do you gamble their life by kicking them out meaning it was it was hard so i basically said i needed a couple of weeks just to get my mind clear before i made any really big decisions um so i got in a flight and i went to come visit my family who was in israel at the time and i spent about eight days doing a lot of introspection on the whole process. And while I was in Israel, uh, my father had, my father's super uh, cool, non-judgmental, had never really asked about how my spiritual or religious journey had been going. It's just very supportive of the music. And, and he had asked if I was putting on tefillin, um, you know, like rapping on my arm and on my head at night. And, I mean, in the morning. And I basically said, like, I don't even wake up until the afternoon. Like, my life is, I'm up all night. <laughs> so, like, I'm not, I don't, you know, I have them. I, I don't, I don't particularly wear them. And, you know, we went back and forth on that conversation for a couple minutes. And then, you know, we, we set it aside. But it did kind of plant this seed of where am I? standing in relationship to my Judaism, in relationship to spirituality, to religion in general? Like, what is my, do I have a long game? Have I ever really thought about it? And knowing that we were about to embark on like this whole next part of the journey, this big tour and the albums coming out and all this, you know, I committed to refocusing to some degree in my life that I was going to take this on. And when I got back to LA, you know, we got back and songs on the radio and we do get the thing. And I realized, uh, I realized on that trip that if we wanted any shot at this, we did have to replace, you know, this individual. So that, that was a, a grueling experience um, of having to say goodbye. I basically haven't spoken since that day. I mean, it was, it was like a, one of those, it was a, he a heavy goodbye. I mean, he was An amputation. Crushed. Yeah, it was, it was crushing. It was crushing and painful for everybody. Super. He super blamed painful. you? He didn't, did he ever own yeah, up to his own role in this? Not that I know of. Uh, so... So that was really hard. So on the one hand, we were going through that and working with a replacement. And then on the other hand, things were going great commercially, right? We were now in every Tower Records in the country, which I know it doesn't exist anymore, but at the time that was a big deal, you know, Tower Records and Best Buy. And, um, and during those next two months, I was growing. I was picking up some books 
on Torah and Judaism. I was started to pray. I hadn't prayed in a really long time. That prayer is always an interesting thing for me because I always felt like very much connected to God and to a presence of guidance in my life that was always super, super prevalent. So the idea that I'd have to sit and like do a special prayer, that was more foreign because I grew up in a home where if the red light you were driving towards turned green, you said, thank you out loud. That was just the home I was in. It was, it was so real anyway, but I was, I was, I was having deep insights about myself and about life. And, uh, and then I met this Chabad rabbi who, uh, to make a very long story short, taught me some Hasidus for the very first time. And it was on a, a Shavuot night. It was a holiday. And he gave a class from midnight to 5 a.m. And it started off with 60 of us. And then by the time we got to the end of the class, it was me and the rabbi. And I'm like waiting with bated breath to hear anything that he has to say. My mind was blown. He was sharing the most deep and beautiful and unbelievable ideas. And uh, Torah had always seemed like a good idea, but I'd never seen like the divinity in it, uh, the spiritual connection to the fact that maybe it's more than just a box of good ideas, but it actually holds, uh, you know, the keys to some deeper reality that I was unaware of. So I was mesmerized for five hours. And at the exact same time in my life, I was going through this question of, do I really want to be in a band forever? Because maybe success looks like something else. And I was on this kind of mental trip because somebody had asked me, how long are you going to be in the band for? And I had said, till we're successful. And he said, when's that? And I said, when's what? And he said, when's success? And I'd never thought about that as a question. Like, what do you mean when is success? I don't know. And the more I thought about this question and I started, you know, looking up and researching the most successful people in the music industry, which in my industry, that was led to a bunch of people who were on the road six to 10 months out of the year, were never married or married to multiple people and never had children or had children with multiple people or had suffered from some form of addiction who, you know, either had attempted or actually taken their own life. Like it was basically saying like the definition of success in my life right now meant that I wanted to kill myself. And it was a, a super wake up call. And then at the same time, I'm learning this depth of reality and Chabad Hasidus, which blew my mind. Uh, and I was having like a midlife crisis, which God willing was not midlife. It was very, very early on in life. What am I doing? What am I doing? Where am I, where am I going? I've never thought about this. So just kind of do, you do what you're passionate about and then and close your mouth and don't think and close your eyes and, you know, go. Uh, and that, that really woke me up. So seeing what happened with my band member with drugs, seeing what happened in my mind about what the future might look like if I don't figure out what I really want in my life. Uh, and then learning all this depth about life and the beauty of reality. That's what opened everything up. And then one day I was walking home and I had one of these lightning bolt aha moments where like, even though it's dark, you know, one flash of lightning makes everything clear. And it became absolutely clear to me. I was on the wrong highway. I was going the wrong way. And that was painful. I literally, I curled up in a ball up against, I remember the alley that I was in. I was in an alleyway walking towards my apartment and I just curled up and I started crying like a baby. I was like, I was like, oh my gosh. Like, like it was like when you know that something's over, like, oh, this is over. Um, and I didn't know what was next. I just knew this was over. Uh, so, and then it took a few months to, to figure out, you know, where to go from there. Was everyone around you astounded? And were they, did they feel betrayed once you said, I need to leave this? Yeah. So when I did come out and tell them that was, that was bad. <laughs> People were very unhappy, very betrayed. Lots of things that I can't say on this talk with you. Um, because in many ways their, the, su it, their success was tied to you. So you yeah. were bringing kind of them down, so to speak. This was the end. This wasn't just ending my time in the band. This was ending their time in the band. I think they did try to continue on afterwards for like about six months. They couldn't find a replacement and that was, uh, that was it. So they, it was, it was full. It was a very full time of, um, hurt. People were really hurt by my decision to leave and to, uh, pursue something else. And uh, it's understandable. Have you ever reached back out to, to them and have you, have you, uh, sort of mended any of those relationships or have those just sort of dissipated into the ether of the past? I've tried and it appears we're not there yet, but uh, I hope that one day I would love to get in a room with them and, and actually, you know, just 
catch up and to speak and to see where everybody is today. One or two of them I've been in touch with a couple of times over the, the last decade and a half. But uh, there was hurt. There was real pain. You know, people had hedged their bets, you know, for this dream. And uh, I was the cause of it coming to an end. So very understandable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very complicated. How do you balance that, you know, fealty to your own self and, and your own needs and at the same time, knowing that it's not a, you know, it's a decision that impacts others profoundly you know, beyond your own uh, personal life. So it could not have been yeah. easy. Yeah, no, I, I asked um, a mentor of mine at the time. I said, you know, what do you do when something is good for you, but it's not going to be good for others? Or maybe something's going to be good for others, but, you know, doesn't look like it'll be all that good for you. And he told me that there was a piece of Talmud that says, if two people are stuck in a desert and there's only one glass of water that you have or one cup of bottle of water, something like that, uh, it says, Chayecha Kodem, your life comes first. Meaning the fact that there's enough water left to save only one person, you're obligated to take care of yourself if that's all that's left. If that's the only option, right? If, if there's an option to save both of you, then great. If there's an option to, you know, do something else where, you know, it's not you or them, fantastic. But if there's only, there's only one option, um, you have to take care of yourself. Because if you don't take care of yourself, then you're not helping anybody in the world. So that was counterintuitive to me at the time because I'm I, I'm generally pretty. Uh, selfless or giving in in that regard like in generally in that type of situation i would have uh I'm, I'm not i'm not too highly opinionated that i need to have it my way but in that case if i hadn't had it my way uh i don't i don't know where i'd be today so you were at that point kind of running from but you didn't know yet what you were running towards how did you make that determination like okay now what where am i going yeah, so I think, uh, and that's a really good point. I, I think that class, that class on Hasidus and the fact that my family was in Israel already and I had had so much time in my youth with a connection to Torah, you know, it wasn't like I was getting up and going to India. Like I knew that probably I would end up in Jerusalem and try to figure out what life was about from there. And if I didn't figure it out from there, I'd go somewhere else. At least that would be my starting point in terms of my landing. Uh, so I didn't know exactly what I was getting myself into. I didn't even know where I was going. I got on a phone with with a rabbi who I wasn't all that close with. I wasn't not close with them, but like, you know, offhand, like we had, we had somewhat of a relationship. And I said like, okay, I, I'm leaving the band and I want to go study about life and about Torah and uh, where should I go? And he gave me a couple options. Eventually he said, you know, there's somebody named Gershenfeld. You got to go to Gershenfeld, Gershenfeld, Gershenfeld. He said his name like 10 times on the call. And... Um, six or seven weeks later, I was on a flight to Gershenfeld. I didn't, I really didn't even know what, what that meant. I, I showed up in some suburb of Jerusalem uh, called Harnof Mountain View and in this apartment complex with uh, five or six floors. And uh, I met all these other guys who were there studying and the classes were great. I was just, from the moment I walked in the door, the, the next day there was a day full of classes and I was inspired out of my mind. And uh, it hasn't really stopped. Incredible. So you just dove right in, started studying at this yeshiva, which is uh, called Machon. You were Machon Shlomo or Machon Yaakov? I went to Machon Yaakov. Machon Yaakov, which is one of two kind of sister schools in in this uh, place, Harnof. And full disclosure, I, you know, I've, in my own professional life, I'm uh, affiliated with them and they're connected to our Moor organization, uh, that I work for in my uh, my main uh, day job or night job or whatever, <laughs> all, all the time job. So you were there for a couple of years and just, I guess that began an odyssey of learning. And what's interesting is that you were activated, it sounds like by by Hasidus, by, you know, Hasidic thought. Uh, this is not a Hasidic school. There is definitely some, you know, maybe some overlap in terms of the focus on deeper ideas and the teaching of the Maharal and, and things like that, but that's still not in the Hasidic realm per se. Um, was that something you were aware of going in or was that a, a tension point? And did you ever delve back into that, you know, ocean of, of, of wisdom that had turned you on to begin with? 
<laughs> so it's so funny because, you know, it takes someone like you who understands all the nuances to even ask that question. And, and I appreciate that very much. I didn't know there was a difference between Hasidus and anything else. I didn't know there were so many streams and brands of Torah <laughs> uh, before, before I got here. You know, I just, I wanted to learn and I showed up and found what I found and fell in love, like you said, with the Maharal and with the Ramchal and the Grah and all these beautiful, beautiful um, teachings. But eventually, uh, it took about five years before I came around. I was like, where's that stuff? <laughs> where's, where's that stuff that like, you know, changed my life? Um, and, and I got very heavily involved with uh, what's called Panimia Satora and, and Kabbalah and Hasidus and uh, all these, all the other areas of depth. And it was a big blessing to go to a place that wasn't Hasidic in nature first so that I got more of a full palate um, and got to taste and uh, gain skills and learn thoughts and philosophy of, of many different streams. Um, and so now it's, uh, it was a big blessing. Very, very happy that that's the way it went. Okay. So I want to fast forward now a little bit because you spent so much time in your earlier life, which is fascinating, but you've done so much lately. And I want to, you know, again, move, move a little bit into that more contemporary period. You know, you studied for many years, as they say, filled your belly with, with knowledge, with wisdom. And at some point, you decide you're going to embark on a sort of a unique mission, as I understand it. And maybe we'll call it like a, a spiritual influencer of sorts and trying to get yourself out there into the world of, of spirituality uh, in the broader universe. You wrote a book, which I'd like to hear about. And of course, the TED Talk. What did you sort of decide you're going to do with you know all the learning that you had accumulated over those years as you started to think towards career and towards and towards you know, personal impact moving forward? Yeah, this, a, a couple of years ago uh, at this point, maybe it's almost three years ago, uh, I had something of a third awakening. I, I feel like I've had three major awakenings in my life. Four, if you count the one at 13 when I got into music. <laughs> maybe maybe we but, can, we can uh, affect another one right now. Fourth wave, fourth wave fifth wave, you know. <laughs> there you with, go. With, with COVID, everything's waves. So you know, another, Everything uh, comes in waves. So I, I had this, you know, Get the, the kind of the first awakening that brought me out of the band and into yeshiva, and then a second awakening that kind of brought me out of a narrow vision of Torah to a very broad vision of what Torah is connected to. And then kind of that third awakening was now, and now what? Where does that take you? Where does that take me? And I don't know, one day I woke up and I had this very clear knowing that it was time to take these last 13 years of learning and share it to the world in such a way that people from all walks of life can gain from it, that Torah fundamentals are at the core of what life is about and what we're doing here and really getting real, really getting authentic, really getting empowered by spirituality, by connection to self, connection to source, connection to the world we live in, connection to God. So once that became clear, then it was just a matter of like, okay, well, how do you do that? And then I, I kind of just got on this mission to figure out, well, how, do, you know, where do you start? Do I start by giving classes in, in a room, <laughs> like in my living room? Do I start by writing a book? Do I start? And I, I just, I listened, I've listened very closely to, uh, to an inner voice and to my intuition. I feel very blessed to, to have great guides in my life uh, who've really helped me figure out, you know, the path forward. Uh, but in a very practical sense, what it looked like for me was I started putting a lot of my thoughts and ideas out there in the world of social media, which I, I didn't even have a smartphone until like a year ago. And I was using one of these old, just dial, dial phones, you know, like where's last... my MySpace page? What happened? It's not there anymore. Right. <laughs> I don't, that's no joke. I literally, I went and looked it up and it's like, it's all gone. Like they've, you know, it's that somewhere thing on is... the, what are they, what are they, it's called the, uh, the web, the rewind web or something. I forgot what it's called. It's like a, uh, Archive, a web know. archive somewhere that web genie or something that holds it all. It's somewhere. Right. Don't worry. Somewhere. <laughs> it is. It is somewhere. So we uh, started sharing these ideas, um, newsletters. I started making videos for YouTube. I started writing and recording. And then eventually uh, I was very inspired. And one month I sat down and I wrote a book like pretty quickly. And by the time I was ready to start get, taking the book to market and like trying to figure out how to put this book out, that was right when COVID hit. And so everything stopped and it was a lot of time for introspection to really go in and go deeper into myself and deeper into life and deeper into my vision and my mission of like, what, what is it that I want to do? 
And during that time, in the first two months of COVID, I wrote another book, which is the book that ultimately came out, which is called It's All the Same to Me. And over 2020, I wrote it, I think in March or April. And then we spent the next four or five months, me and, and my editor kind of going back and forth. And then it's got some really great um, feedback and some really wonderful endorsements, you know, one from Deepak Chopra, which was like really, really helped with people finding the book and having How'd a desire to, to want to get to it. Um, probably too long of a story for the amount of time we have left here, but also a miracle. I've just, you know, living in miracles for the last 35 years, but really, really heavy miracles this last year and a half has, has just been blessing, blessing, blessing. And then the book came out and thank God, you know, people, it really, people really enjoyed it. And uh, I feel so blessed to have been able to share and, and to take that and to give people a doorway and a pathway to themselves, to peace, to loving their lives more, to uh, being able to be more present with what's happening. And it, again, it's that, that book is very much about inner peace and uh, an idea called Hishtavos, which became popularized in the writings of the Baal Shem Tov and Chassidus, but it is really, it pervades many areas of Torah. And then not long after that, so it, it, again, as as like a result of the book, uh, that's when uh, I met Steve Monahan, who is the organizer for this TED Talk that I did in Atlanta, who had read the book and really liked it and, you know, put me in touch with Gina Carr, who was the head of, I think she was the COO of this TED Talk and whatever. Then it was just a matter of time before you know, they were like, okay, come submit. And then uh, we came. So the, and that was the, the book that you wrote, though, was, a, was not a Jewish book per se, right? It was designed for a broader audience. I think everything I do is designed on some level for a broader audience. But I think what, I, what, what you're saying is it wasn't written as a book that you're going to find in like a yeshiva bookstore. It was meant to be, as they say, shava the kol nefesh, that every person should be able to get something from here. Uh, so it's Jewish in nature, uh, right? The subtitle is A Torah Guide to Inner Peace and Love of Life, right? So uh, it, it's kind of the lens looking at the world of inner peace and spirituality through a lens of Torah and Hasidus. That was the, the point. And to write it in a language that anybody can gain from because we all need to grow. And that's not even true. That's not even the right language. It's that we all have the opportunity to grow. And if you want to, there's a, you know, there's another lens you can look through to help you get there. So the work that you're doing, I think, is unusual because what you're really trying to do is distill, you know, what is normally kind of insider information through a prism into a language that can be accessed by people more broadly. So, you know, what was that process like of of, of doing that distillation and sort of concretizing? Torah language, Jewish language into universalist language and something that has broader appeal. You know, we talk about a process of, in, in the Hasidus right, called simtsum, which means constriction. Was that a constriction process for you? Was it difficult to translate from one language, not just literally the language, but the conceptual language from one frame to another? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think about it sometimes as like when you read my book, I think you're just getting a little bit of a glimpse into like my head. <laughs> it, it wasn't so much work in trying to like make the language fit and and take it and put it into a box as much as it was almost like giving room to breathe to the language because sometimes the language is very boxy and so when we when we talk about something kind of more broadly instead of getting so caught up in a very specific nuanced way of how something could be said we can put it into a very broader box. So, you know, a, a good example of this would be, you know, when I say the word emuna, right? Emuna in Hebrew is translated to something like belief or faith, something like that. And I'll use the word very often loosely. And very often I'll get the question, well, isn't that bitachon? Bitachon is another word for some level of faith or security. And and there is a difference. If we're going to get really nuanced, there's a difference between emuna and bitachon, between faith and security right? So I don't know. I don't even know if those are good translations because you see Hebrew words don't translate into words. Like, like they don't go one-to-one. -one. They go one-to-many because Hebrew words translate into entire concepts, which you need to wrap your head around. So if we get super nuanced, so then yes, every single word is taking you to a very specific place. But on some level, you need to have such a 
wide vocabulary and already have so much insight into the Torah world and the Torah language than access all these points, it can get very complex very fast for people. And so if we're doing one-on-one or small groups and we want to actually dive into these things, uh, that's a fun uh, exercise in, in understanding. But when you want to share something to the world, it's like, well, at Yes, there are nuanced differences between a lot of these ideas or words, but we can put it under one umbrella and it's called, you know, spiritual connection, right? Which includes faith and trust and security and all of these things. So when, when you, you kind of give room to breathe for a lot of these concepts by, by going broader. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's just, just how I think. I see concepts and then I see where do they fit in, in the bigger picture? Like, is this moving me in this direction or that direction? And as we go deeper, deeper in, so then you're right, then there are all these little paths if you want to get to a very specific place. And so it's really by, by becoming less precise in a certain way, they are able to open up a more universalist message and find kind of the, the commonalities among the themes that will allow you to bypass all of those kind of insider nuances. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't use the word becoming less precise. I would say by using the words precisely for what they're meant to do, which is to bring you to this bigger thing, right? I Meaning that's the purpose. The purpose of language is actually to get us to the big goals. So there are nuanced differences in how we understand them. So if you took them too precisely, you might actually miss the forest for the trees, but you might actually miss the bigger vision. So I think when we go broad, we're actually, we're doing what the language was there to do. When you think about it, like if, if we're going to go super macro, right? Think about life in a big way. So what's the purpose of the whole Torah? Like if I were to ask that question, right? What, what's the purpose of this whole thing? So hopefully we don't come out with a, a, a laundry list of answers because that, that can't be, right? We, we, we want something that it, it holds, it's a system that has to hold all the other systems within it, right? So, you know, maybe it's connection, Right? Maybe it's awakening. Maybe you know you have you have to use some word that allows us to grab onto the whole vision, and then we can talk about the different aspects of it. So it's almost like if I were to speak about your body, you know, why do you eat healthy foods? Right? Why do you exercise? Why do you do all these things? So there's one answer, which is to be healthy. Right? And to be healthy includes having more energy, not getting sick, all the all the the details in between. So that's what I mean by like if we go macro, that's precisely what all the things are trying to do. We're just focusing on the big vision, big vision, big vision, and um, and I think if you have that again, all the pieces do start to once you if if we're dealing with the body and you start eating healthy and sleeping healthy and all these other healthy habits and you know and other things start to fall into place, even if that's not your exact intention. Right, your the pH level in your blood gets better. The alkal out was it alkaline or um, acidic part of your body gets better. Uh, the you know all the balances you know everything the the brain function is going to get better. Your heart function is going to be better because you're you're doing all the all the right steps. But we call it one word, which is healthy. And I think you know when you think think about Torah, it's like the the word is holy. The world the word is whole. The world the word is connected. The world is pure. Um, when you go there things start to open up in every aspect of your life. What's your sort of approach to social media? You've, I think, cultivated a unique presence and and really kind of positioned yourself to connect to unique kinds of people and you know people that are out there in the broader world of spiritual pursuits and spiritual awareness. What's that process been like? How have you thought about your presence on social media? Yeah, I think the way I look at social media is a channel to share the message. And to be helpful, right? That's that's a word that's probably understated in a lot of ways. It's just I, you know, just to be helpful. We we all need help. When you're a baby, you need help learning how to eat. You need help learning how to walk. And as an adult, we need help learning how to live. And the journey is a journey of remembering. You know, remembering who we really are, remembering what we're doing here. And social media is an incredible, incredible, incredibly powerful tool to share a message, to allow your voice to be heard, your message to be seen. And because this message, I think, is universal in nature, so I don't shy from reaching out to anybody who would appreciate that. So that's a person in you know, Johannesburg or someone in uh, Chicago, a guy in yeshiva, or a mother at a bakery, or uh, you know, a teenager, or a senior citizen. I mean, it does it doesn't matter to me. You know, if if they're looking for this, so I want to 
be there for them. I think that's that, that's kind of the whole thing. Is it, can I be helpful? If I, if I can be helpful, then I'm happy. Finally, Moshe, I just I want to understand a little bit more about the TEDx experience. You know, you said you got you made these connections through the book, and they invited you. Just a little bit about that process. What was it like being invited, going there, all the the hoopla and the reaction since? So this would require a whole session in its own right. It was really such an experience. And one that I'm probably not even fully disclosing yet. This is like one day, maybe in a couple of years, we'll talk about the whole experience. But it was so fun to be there and to see. It was like, it's a watching mastery, right? You show up and there's, first of all, the whole lead up into the event is very beautifully choreographed. There's a lot of meetings along the way where they're making sure you've got your talk and they set you up with a coach, you know, and they set you up with all these other people and you're connecting and they've got classes and It was really, really such a beautiful experience to meet all the people behind the scenes. And then when you get there, you know, it's you. And um, in our event, I think there were 14 of us. So we've got 14 speakers and 14 coaches and all the people behind the scenes. So there's like 40, 50 people there. It's like a little tight family that gets created very fast. And we've met each other a little bit offhand through social media or other events we've done along the way, but now we're all in the same place. And although I had flown out to Atlanta from Jerusalem, there were people who flew out from all over the world also. People from Canada, people from New York, people from Kentucky, people from like... All, all over the place who were all in Atlanta. And it was uh, well, another guy from Seattle. Um, and we just, we just had a lot of fun. There was, it was a lot of uh, tension. I think people were feeling like, oh, this is an important talk. You know, you know some people, some people were more on edge and uh, yeah, just so beautiful. And then, and to see just how they, how much care and thought they put into it. You know what I mean? They, they, they turned this event hall into like this immaculate, beautiful TED event hall and, um, even the people doing sound, just really great, nice, making sure that everybody was mic'd up the right way. And everybody during the, they, there was a rehearsal day and then the actual talk day. And on the rehearsal day, you know, everybody got to check their levels, to run through the talk if they wanted to run through the talk, to get used to standing on the red dot. And, you know, what does it feel like to pace around on it, you know, so you don't fall off of it, you know, during the, <laughs> during the shoot. And then the day itself was a lot of fun, you know, a lot of people in the audience. And, Were you nervous? Uh, yes but for reasons that are beyond this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got a lot of good teasers here, Moshe, for, uh, for an eventual part two. And since the reaction, I mean, I see you've gotten garnered tens of thousands of views already. Has it somehow changed you in any way or changed what you're trying to do or taken things to a new level? Uh, I don't think it's changed me. I think the part that changed me wasn't the talk as much as it was. I had some pretty powerful life-changing insights, again, things that I've read and things that I teach, but just that were deepened in me in this process. In the last three months, deepened a lot of these teachings in a way that money can't buy and you can't read in a book. Some things you just have to kind of go out there and live it. And then as you live it, you receive new kind of downloads of information. So uh, in that sense, it changed me. Commercially, you know, it's reached a lot of people, which is really, really nice. And I'm so happy about that. And, uh, definitely people have reached out to do a lot of different speaking opportunities and engagements in the, in the upcoming months, which is exciting. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what comes from it. You know, I had a great conversation last night with uh, Byron Katie. I don't know if you know who Byron Katie is. But Sounds she's, familiar. Uh, I don't know who it is exactly. Yeah, she's, she's an amazing person, just a special soul, a shining light. Um, she's an author. She's a speaker. She wrote a book called Loving What Is. And uh, she'd been really influential in my life and in my mother's life and my wife's life. Like she was just somebody who was around for a long time. And it, I think it was as a result of the TED Talk that certain things kind of opened up that allowed that connection to happen. So, you know, a lot of things are the, the intangibles. You don't even know certain things that you do are opening up doors for something, you know, a year from now, five years from now. So was it the TED Talk? Was it the book? Was it the, was it the fact that, you know, I learned a certain book six years ago. I don't, who knows, right? Like you're, you know, the one thing we can know is that we don't know. And when you stay open to the not knowing, but what you do know is that it's a friendly universe and things are working out and there's guidance and direction and things are happening on purpose and there's intention behind everything that takes place. And you can just say, well, I don't, I don't have to know what that is. I just have to be okay with not knowing and kind of lean into it. Uh, life has a very magical way of uh, unfolding. Well, it's a wonderful way to end because your TED Talk is all about those exact themes and the friendliness of the universe and what we could gain. So I enjoyed it very much and was, I'd say, in a certain uh, way, kind of proud to see 
uh, one of our own up there and, and giving such a splendid uh, representation on the stage over there. It was really exciting. And I know a lot of other people shared that sentiment as well. And we look forward to the uh, future iterations, more TED Talks, more books, more helpful outputs from you on social media and, and wherever you are producing your content. Moshe Gersh, thank you so, so much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Ari. Thank you for having me. And just a final reminder to join me along with almost 8,000 other people as a daily donor to dailygiving.org. You will be thrilled with yourself for days, months, and years to come. Dailygiving.org, proud sponsor of Jews You Should Know. Please join me in signing up right now. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.